in the middle of a teaching series entitled Why Jesus, and we've been hearing from Sparkers, uh, their personal testimony to the answer, uh, their answer, their response to the question, Why Jesus? And today, we have our very own Dan Bradford. Would you please give him a warm welcome as he comes and shares in this teaching series? Wow. Uh, it's a privilege to be up here chatting with you guys. Um, I feel like kind of my own story is a very ordinary one in a lot of ways. Um, but I think Jesus has done some extraordinary things in my life uh, in the midst of that. So um, hopefully those come through. One thing I thought, there's a couple things I want to make sure I get across. You know, just like movies start with often in the middle or something like that. So I'm going to, um, I want to get across two things up front. One is um, when I think about answering the question, why Jesus and what compels me to follow Jesus, it's um, looking around the room and seeing um, the connections I have with many of you. And um, I'm not going to look at Stacy anymore because I'm not going to make it through this. Um, so one thing you should probably also know is that I'm a little more extroverted than the average sparker and I'm easily moved to tears. So oh, bear with me. Um, that connection with just like with people like Stacy has um, walking beside me in the discovery we've had here at Spark has just been um, uh, beyond words, really. Um, the other thing I want to share with you is that when I think about um, my own journey, if I was trying to sum it up and contrast it, I think about how I started and was compelled by Jesus was learning about Jesus and his love and grace, um, his um, redemptive power, um, the opportunity to have eternal life with him. Um, that's not where I am today. I think my um, whole experience has changed, evolved um, pretty dramatically uh, to one of really wanting to experience Jesus now and have heavenly moments with his kingdom now. And um, I think that's um, very important for me, and, and hopefully that comes through in my story. So um, a few things. Just uh, I um, grew up in a Christian family uh, and church. Uh, the, we were, um, I'm the sixth of six. Uh, by the time I came along, uh, compliance was highly valued in my, um, in my family. Um, and uh, reputation and perception, my parents were very involved in church. Um, through my siblings and a number of experiences, though, um, the seeds of doubt and trying to understand the unfairness of life and justice was there. Um, as I entered into, um, uh, and I think about my, my church experience, the word Bible was in the name of our church, was in the title. Um, seeking the Bible and understanding God's word was a great, a cool thing, of, um, uh, an awesome thing. But I think also in my own interpretive experience, I thought of it more as like, how do I unlock and know about how to live and have a safe and kind of a prescriptive life in many ways. And that's how I, I thought about the Bible in many ways. And so that was my desire was to decode that so I could have that, that life. I also, the couple other influences in my life is that uh, when I was in my middle school, high school years, um, the uh, Sanctity of Life movement was, was very um, active and what was interesting about that was there was a number of topics around um, assisted suicide, abortion, 
um, headship and family and family values, gay relationships, a number of issues like that. Um, but there was more of a moralistic bent to it than a, a, a message of mercy and compassion and understanding and acceptance. The reason I tell you all those things is those actually had a pretty big influence on me. And, and even in my high school and early college years, or mostly in my high school years, I was very involved. I actually um, led a debate against the local um, chapter of Planned Parenthood um, at my school. I led Bible studies at my school. I look back and think about some of those moments, and I really cringe at my self-righteousness and arrogance in, uh, in those moments. Um, I'd give anything to have those back, frankly. Um, But then, um, as life often does, it gets messy. It's not so tidy. Um, And real people in my life that I love dearly um, kind of intersected that. First, um, my cousin Tim, who I looked up to and thought very uh, fondly of, was super warm and friendly guy, came out to me that he was gay but felt no means to know God and Jesus, Um, felt totally rejected. My dear friend was raped. Dear, dear friend, very close friend of mine, my first year of college was raped, came to me saying, should I take the morning after pill? All of a sudden, all that stuff that I'd grown up with and learned was not fitting so tightly together so easy. Um, I fell in love with fell in love with um, a woman who was um, on her own journey of discovery around feminism and her own empowerment. I brought that home to my parents. That wasn't so tidy for them either, the way we had, uh, I was raised. Several more stories like that, following with um, one of my closest friends and housemate until I got married, took his life. And um, a lot around the issue of his own trying to reconcile his weakness of his faith and the shame of his mental health. So um, I struggled. I wrestled. In fact, I have to say that in many ways, um, I wanted things to be a little more tidy. And so I just kind of plugged away with the faith I knew. And um, rather than really try to wrestle these things through and struggle with them, that was a lot easier for me. Well, then um, a new, another chapter and a, and a pretty significant event happened in my life. Um, we had our three kids. Um, Andrew, who many of you have met here, was five months old. We woke up one Sunday morning, and Anne um, was very sick. She said, she saw, she's a clinician. She self-diagnosed and said, this isn't right. We need to go to the hospital. Took her to the ER. Within a few hours, she was in ICU. By 10 o'clock that night, it was touch and go. We didn't know if she'd make it through the night. Um, I was scared. I was really scared. I was scared to lose my partner. I was scared to be a single dad. And I didn't know what to do, really. I'd kind of lost control of the moment. And one thing I haven't shared with you is like having that prescription and, not, and, and control was so important to me. Two things happened that were really profound. One is through that whole day and experience as, as Anne became more and more increasingly unconscious. But during that time, I was just blown away by how profound her peace was, that Jesus was going to take care of everything. 
I wanted that. I also was blown away by how the kingdom of God showed up in a very, very personal and real way with the people that came in and sacrificed, stayed with us hours and, and took care of Anne, took care of me, took care of the kids. And I was like, this isn't the Jesus that I kind of started my life thinking about of wanting to know about Jesus. This is a Jesus I really wanted to experience in his kingdom. And those were just um, just incredible moments. Well, then we got through that. Anne's here. Um, and uh, we had, we, our kids grew up, and we faced the new challenges and messiness of raising adolescents. And, and we realized, coming through that whole experience, that we really wanted to have our kids experience Jesus the same way. And we really um, started embracing and getting more involved in um, kingdom stuff, community stuff, and hanging with others and serving. And that opened our eyes up to um, just what a remarkable experience it was to be um, close to Jesus and experiencing his work. Um, And what was uh, what I think really stood out to us during that time was how, in many ways, Jesus felt more present and his kingdom felt more present in those moments, like working with um, the uh, Day Worker Center here in Mountain View, which is, focuses on immigrants and a number of other um, organizations we are involved with. We felt Jesus' presence and the kingdom presence much more there often than we did at church, to be honest. So we came through that experience um, and that opened our eyes to many things and, and a lot of discovery. And frankly, we, we started struggling more and more with where we, we should be. And that's how we ended up here. In fact, Andrew, my youngest, was the one that, that pressed us to come here and check it out. And it just totally resonated with, um, with what we'd been experiencing and some of our uh, discovery along the way. So... Um, I want to close by just, I, I think if I were going to wrap up and just come back to that point um, that I shared earlier, is that I felt like, for me, my, that journey again was learning to, well, actually, let me say it this way. If I was going to talk about what compels me to follow Jesus now, maybe if I was going to sum it up, it's that same Jesus that walked with me, even when I wanted to know more about him than really know him, he stayed with me through that. He walked beside me, and he was always ready to be with me as that discovery um, occurred. Um, the same, the other thing I think that really compels me to follow Jesus um, that I want to come back to is the kingdom and the community of Jesus. And I think it's being with you all, and I think probably the most profound experience for me coming into Spark was shortly was joining the race group and um, walking together stumbling, my insensitivity, my own fragility, um, and everybody in that group um, being so vulnerable, um, so understanding and sensitive, but also um, being open and courageous with me as well. And I think that is, um, I think that's really what the kingdom of Jesus is. I also think that's what Spark is. So um, thank you for letting me share with you guys. Uh, God, thank you so much for all of these amazing people, for the stories that you are writing in our hearts and in our lives. Thank you for those who have gathered here to um, share in this moment. 
to con- contemplate who you are and your love and your grace. Uh, continue, um, God, by your spirit to just permeate all of our hearts in this place um, so that more and more of that kingdom that Dan just talked about can be established here on earth as it is in heaven. In your name, amen. amen. It's fascinating to me a lot of these stories about what we used to come through and the kind of Jesus that we discover um, fit into a, a fairly similar pattern that all of us humans do. The word hierarchy, uh, its etymology comes from this word higher, which means sacred. It's actually a priestly term. It means this is the sacred way in which we are to do things. And RK is actually a Greek word uh, that means beginning or rule. In fact, in, in the Gospel of John, it's NRK is where we get the word archaeology, etc. It's from the beginnings, the first principles, the rule, the beginning, the lead, etc. And what I'd like to share with you very briefly is part of this Jesus movement is to take a natural tendency that we all have that was shared here to create these hierarchies and to create a higher, H-I-G-H-E-R, way of thinking about how we are to be ruled and to be governed. In short, here's the sermon in the sentence. Why Jesus? Because Jesus embodies the subversion and transformation of all the divisions and distinctions we humans are inclined to make. In other words, Jesus makes us all one. The idea that we stratify, the idea that we create hierarchies is very, very familiar. Most of you will understand the caste system in India. Ancient Roman and Greek cultures have particular levels, and if you are in the higher level, you are of greater value, all the way up from the patrician class to Caesars, and then all the way down to the plebeians and the slaves, and then especially if you were a woman, you would be in those lower classes. Uh, Greeks had a very similar social stratification, and of course, in our modern economic system, we have upper class, middle class, lower class, and whether whether or not we uh, believe it or not, even the United States of America has various class systems. Uh, Some people are obviously very aware of that. They live it every single day. And other people think we don't have, we are all created equal. The reality is we all have these stratifications, these hierarchies. This is the way that humans tend to organize themselves, especially in business. This is one of my favorite uh, hierarchy. Um, When the guy on top looks down, he sees only blank. And when the guys on the bottom look up, they see only blank. You can fill in the blanks there. So we create these stratifications and these hierarchies. The ancient Greeks did this by name-calling. The ancient Greeks thought that they were sophisticated and cosmopolitan, and they knew that their language and their culture was better than any other world. And anybody who wasn't Greek was called a barbarian because they believed that any other language that anybody spoke sounded like bar, 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 bar which is where we get our word barbarian. Um, the idea that other people's language, tone, accent, etc., is lower class than ours is actually found in our text. There's the passage in Matthew 26. After a little while, the bystanders came up to Peter and said, certainly you are one of them. Your accent betrays you, which is a demeaning way of saying you're from that place called Galilee. I mean, you're from the backwoods. You are not as important, not as sophisticated, definitely not as intelligent. Um, there's other hints of this, even a location of stratification. Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? That particular place is clearly not of value. Where we come from is of value. 
while we think of name-calling as something that maybe is, happens at juvenile, uh, on the playground when you're in junior high, it actually happens in a lot of places, specifically in political arenas. Does anybody familiar with name-calling and politics? Of course you are. Uh, many of you are familiar with Chloe Swarbrick. In the year 2050, I will be 56 years old. Yet, right now, the average age of this 52nd parliament is 49 years old. Okay, boomer. Uh, Current political institutions... This clip made the world... went viral around the world with two specific generations, millennials and zennials, right? Anybody under that age, because like, yes, okay, boomer. Um, which is, so she's a, she's a politician in the New Zealand parliament talking about climate change. And of course, there's this big generational divide. And name calling is a way uh, that we do all the time and labeling different people of stratifying and hierarchy. And the, the basic end result of that is that we are essentially better than the person that we are calling names. I mean, this is a very juvenile thing. I have a basic theory about humanity as nobody really grows up. We just get better at being junior hires. We get more sophisticated adolescence is basically what happens. Now, the important thing to understand about all of these stratifications is that underlying the system of hierarchies, there's always metaphysical or religious ideas that are woven into that. There's always a thought process that goes into why the hierarchy exists in the first place. For example, you, barbarians are called barbarians because they are unintelligent by nature. Galileans the reason why we look down upon them is, be, is not just because they were from Galilee. There's questionable ancestry because we don't believe that they are truly legitimate Israelites. And here's a, a very pernicious one, especially in our era, area in Silicon Valley, that if you are wealthy or privileged, it is because you are actually smarter or more virtuous. In a small group this last Wednesday, we were talking about... Uh, the idea that some people are called self-made millionaires, which is a complete contradiction. And every single one of these titles were coming from articles that were to help you become a self-made million. This doesn't make any sense. Like it's a complete oxymoron. It's a complete contradiction. There is no such thing as a self. Every hierarchy, every stratification has some sort of metaphysical or religious idea behind it. And the value behind the hierarchy is one of greater value or lesser value. Men in the, throughout history have been stratified at the top because the metaphysical religious idea is that men are calm, rational, unemotional, more intelligent, and women do not have that. This is why we have the word hysteria, because it comes from that idea, that pernicious, misogynistic idea that women are not rational. One of the ideas underlying this uh, that pervades virtually every religion is this idea of a, called a great chain of being. In virtually every religious ideology, you can see this hierarchy. It starts at the top with a deity, usually associated with Caesar or the emperor or whoever at that particular moment. Anyway, the deity is the higher of the beings. And then below that deity are the angels of the beings. And if you keep going down, then you have humanity. Uh, then you have, of course, women. And then you have the animals and the birds and 
et cetera, et cetera, all the way down to the plants, and then you get to the lower portion where you have the demons. Every single culture throughout history has developed a stratification and a hierarchy for how we are to organize ourselves. And the whole point of that is there are some people that have value. There are some people that are more intelligent. There are some people that have greater value when it comes to human prosperity, human worth, etc. And there's other people that simply don't. And there's all sorts of different reasons and rationales that people have developed to substantiate those hierarchies. If you look back even to Greek texts, they will talk about the sun and the moon and the stars, all the planets aligned, and they will talk about the astrological reasoning. If you were born in a certain period of time, you clearly don't have the intelligence of somebody else who was born during a different time. We've been doing this for a very long time. One of my reasons, or one of my answers to the question, why Jesus? Because in the first century, somebody came along and started teaching and developing a movement that radically, pointedly, subversively revolutionized the way in which we think about these social stratifications. When it comes to social status, gender, and class, Every single one of the ways in which we divide ourselves and stack ourselves and class identify ourselves was directly undermined and addressed, attacked, rethought, and reworked. And there's far too much of this to say than a moment at a service like this, but you could go page after page after page for how this is one of the main reasons why this early Christian movement took off. They saw something about humanity that was not stratified, that was not hierarchical. And it stems all the way back to the very beginning of our story. If you remember, Genesis is the telling of the beginnings. And they you might just skip over this because, like, of course, people leave. But notice this phrase. Therefore, a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife, and they become one flesh. Who's doing the leaving? The man. Is that the way it's supposed to work in ancient Near Eastern cultures? No. It's supposed to be the woman who leaves. But it's not the woman in this passage. It's the man who leaves. We keep reading throughout the early Genesis account from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. There's a fundamental idea of primogeniture. It's a big word to mean that the firstborn is the one that's most valued. They're the one that gets the inheritance. They're the one that gets the blessing. And if you take a look at the story of Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, as well as others, these are just the main if you take a look, Isaac is not the firstborn, Jacob is not the firstborn, and Joseph is the second to last born. The entire story upends the hierarchy that was established. It's supposed to be the firstborn that gets the blessing, that gets the inheritance, but not in our story. Primogenitor, a system that we have developed to say that this child who is born first becomes essentially the most important, the most valued, therefore gets the greatest inheritance, is upended in our story. 
Now, if you go to Jesus, Matthew chapter 1, this is a brilliant passage, an account of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez. And right, right? Nobody, no Christian I know likes to read this for their devotional time, right? It's, unless Maybe it's for your bedtime. But if you look closely at this genealogy, which is so critical and important to the Jesus story, the establishment of him as the Messiah, look who's listed in this, in this passage. Tamar, Ruth, Rahab, and the wife of Uriah. First of all, Tamar, not an Israelite. In a time in which your national and ethnic identity meant something powerful to the continuation of your ancestry and to the place that you have within society, in the genealogy of Jesus, we got a Canaanite. We have two of them, actually, and they're both women listed and named in the genealogy. Now, you might think, well, so so what? It's just a name. When everything is patriarchal and centered around the father's line, and when everything has to do with your ethnic identity, to list these people in a genealogy is a revolutionary upturn of what is supposed to be stacked hierarchy and stratification. Ruth is even a Moabite. A Moabite? Do you know what a Moabite? Me'av is the Hebrew. Me'av, Moabite, Me'av, from my father, a descendant of an incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters. Oh, boy, is right. <laughs> like, if you were called a Moabite, it's like, oh, you're the person that comes from your father, right? I mean, like, that, that's the name. And then, of course, you've got the wife of Uriah, a Hittite, not even closely related to any of these people, an indigenous person to the land of Israel. This goes on and on and on. Just a couple others. Mark chapter 9, Jesus is talking. Don't stop him, for no one who does a deed of power in my name will be able to soon afterwards speak evil of me. Whoever is not against us is for us. This is right after the disciples are saying, but they're doing good things in your name. Should we go and stop them because they are not a part of us? And Jesus is like, no. That stratification, that division, that separation that you think is important is not important. When it comes to family, we've mentioned this passage before. While he was still speaking to the crowds, his mother and his brothers were standing outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. But to the one who had told him this, Jesus replied, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Which is a really interesting question. Like, why would you ask that? I just told you who they are. They're standing right outside. Jesus, Jesus. <laughs> and it's here that we find a hint and a clue that the movement of Jesus shifts from family and ethnic identity over to a spiritual identity, which is found in every single one of us. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. You get on board with the idea of who we are as a human species. You get on board with the idea of what God wants to do here. That is what makes us family. It's a shift from a hierarchy to a higher rule, from a sacred rule to a higher rule. One that rules us all, not the divisions that we create. 
And then, of course, the famous and fantastic passage from Paul, because a lot of, oh, this is a huge talk that we'll need to do later. Paul is often seen, uh, it has a reputation of being anti-women, misogynistic, very much about his own, uh, you know, ethnic identity, etc. But this is one of the most incredible passages There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female for all. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. You're telling me that in Jesus, I don't have to be male. I don't have to be Israelite. I don't have to be wealthy. I don't have to. All I have to do is belong to the family which I already do because I am also created in the image and likeness of God and I am also a member of Abraham's family? Yes. All of these divisions that we put up between ourselves are torn down. They don't matter. They are not important when it comes to the kingdom of God. So that's what I mean when I say Instead of hierarchies, which we all have to live in, which we all have to fight against, which we all are trying to wrestle with, even to this day because it's been with us forever and ever, the reason why I love and follow Jesus is because there is a higher rule. There is a higher way of living out how we are to govern and love and understand each other as brothers and sisters. Uh, This gentleman, Robert Louis Wilkin, wrote an incredible book, The Christians as Romans Saw Them. You don't often want to think about people through the eyes of enemies, but sometimes they will give you some clues. As I have read more deeply in the ancient sources, and particularly in the Christian sources, I am more impressed at how different Christianity was from the world into which it was born. It was centered on a living person, and it took form in a new kind of community, independent of the state. Bishops were not functionaries of the cities, and political authorities had no say in their elections. Oh, I love this. The Bible gave Christians a new vocabulary to speak about God, human beings, the world, and history. Though they worked within patterns of thought rooted in ancient culture, Christian thinkers transformed them so profoundly that in the end, something quite new came into being. And in his book, he cites Pliny the Younger, who's having a conversation with the emperor Trajan at the time. He says, you want me to persecute these Christians, right? Let me tell you how I'm doing that. And we get a clue as to how these Christians were behaving. Pliny writes, I judged it so much the more necessary to extract the real truth with the assistance of torture from two female slaves who were styled deaconesses. But I could discover nothing more than depraved and excessive superstition. Pliny is no friend of the Christians. He wants them gone. And in his report, he talks about Christianity in its early movement having two female slaves as leaders in the organization. That should blow your mind. Rodney Stark in his brilliant book, Triumph of Christianity, the rise of Christianity depended upon women. In response to the special appeal that the faith had for women, the early church drew substantially more female than male converts, and this in a world where women were in short supply. Having an excess of women gave the church a remarkable advantage because it resulted in disproportionate Christian fertility and in a considerable number of secondary conversions. Women were substantively central to the movement of Jesus. E.A. Judge talks about the ancient world as having 
pity or the view of pity being a defect of character? Why would you think about people of lower classes with any sense of concern? And in his book, A History of Christianity, Paul Johnson writes, the Christians ran a miniature welfare state in an empire which for the most part lacked social services. In other words, those people that you think are not worthy of any dignity and any respect, they are also part of the kingdom. The whole point is, listen, the stratifications and the hierarchies that we have created in Jesus, they don't matter. All of that doesn't matter. Everyone is a part of this movement and kingdom. One more video, we will show Professor Ben Witherington summing it up in this way. Rodney Stark has argued that one of the reasons Christianity grew so quickly in those early centuries was that it was so appealing to women. Is that something you'd agree with? Yeah, I think that's right. And, and, and one of the reasons for the Roman caricature that Christianity is a religion of women, slaves, and minors is that children and women and slaves saw an opportunity for more equality and more freedom and more redemption than they were going to get in some other kind of context, and they went for it. What? And as Paul says in Galatians 3.28, in Christ there's neither Jew nor Gentile, no slave or free, and no male and female, uh, using the terms specifically that refer to gender. In Christ there is no male and female. So what does that really mean? Do men cease to be men and women cease to be women? No, but what it means is that uh, ethnic identity, social status, and gender have no cash value in the order of salvation. They, they don't make you a more spiritual person. They don't make you a better leader. Uh, they don't get you any closer to eternal salvation. Uh, in fact, uh, salvation in Christ transcends those categories and transforms and transfixes those categories. So, I mean, it's a pretty radical teaching. Uh, some have called Galatians 3.28 the Magna Carta of human freedom, of human freedom in a world, a fallen world full of stratification and hierarchies of all kinds, not just gender hierarchies, but all kinds of hierarchies. Uh, Paul is saying, if anyone is in Christ, they are a whole new creature. And the old has passed away. This is pretty radical stuff. So why Jesus? You can totally clap for that. Um, because Jesus embodies the subversion and transformation of all the divisions and distinctions we humans are inclined to make. Jesus makes all of us one. And I know every single one of us at some particular point in our lives have been labeled, have been called names, have been put in our place. This is encoded in our history, in our life. This is encoded in just the, our own psyches. And part of the reason why we do the work that we do is not because we're trying to be liberal or social or any other, again, another stratification, another kind of class, another kind of you know, category. The reason why we do this kind of work is because in Jesus, all of these things that we have now established, all of these things that we think make some people better and other people not as good, the, all of the things and the divisions that we create for ourselves, they don't matter when it comes to the kingdom as established in Jesus. And so if you have ever been put in your place, if you have ever been made to feel as if 
You are not as worthy because of some sort of label or name that somebody put upon you. We invite you to a completely radical new way of thinking about yourself and the world in which we live and inhabit. And to consider that if somebody does that, if somebody is pushing in that direction, somebody is trying to separate, divide, name call, demean, put down. If somebody is doing that, they're missing out on the goodness of who God is, the movement of Jesus, and they are perpetuating the very evil that Jesus is trying to fight against. And so part of what we're doing here, part of the reason for our identity, part of why Jesus is because every single human on the face of this planet matters to God and is of equal value, of equal status. Your approach, your presence, your closeness with God is of equal worth. And we will not let any other division break that down. Ethnic, gender or sexual identity, class, race, educational status, None of that matters in the kingdom. You are all equal. This is a radical move that started with Jesus and it continues to this day. Are the hierarchy still here? Oh yeah, we still have work to do. But this is why Jesus is important to us. And I hope that movement of Jesus will become important to you for that same reason. And as we come to communion, this is a perfect liturgical way of celebrating the unity. No questions are asked when we talk about this table, this sacred moment that we have. No questions are asked. We don't care who you are, where you've come from. You are all welcome here. And we all take the same cracker. We all drink the same juice. We all participate in the same body because that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So we're going to sing And for those of you who are visiting new, you are welcome to get up and take the cracker and take the juice together as a symbol of your welcome to this table and to this community. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. All are welcome at this table as we sing. If you're able, please stand for a benediction. To all of you in presence here, may you be freed and liberated from any stratification, hierarchy, label, division, name that has been placed upon you that you've been carrying. And in Christ, may you be freed. And may you be welcomed into this family, fully, your fullness of your humanity, all of you, as an equal, in full and complete share of the kingdom. It belongs to you. In his name, amen.